That third verse there, I want you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. That's very appropriate to our sermon this morning. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 115, Psalm 115. You can find that on page 604 in the church Bibles. We'll be looking together at the entirety of this psalm. And I want us to do something a little different in the middle of our scripture reading this morning. Uh, When we reach verses 9 to 11, you'll see that there on page 604. I'd like us to read that portion antiphonally, which means that I will read the first line of each verse, 9, 10, and 11, and then the congregation will read that second line, which is repeated there. And I'll, I'll give you the cue, hopefully, that... Works well. We'll coordinate that together. But let's uh, give our attention to God's Word, Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, may you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. You become what you worship. This is the psalmist's sobering pronouncement, which is to ring in the ears of God's covenant people, a people surrounded by nations full of idols, a people who have most likely come through the crucible of exile and now find themselves on the receiving end of taunts, and mockery from the pagan nations around them. They're a demoralized people. They're a decimated people, dwindled down in number. They're a dispersed people. And the psalmist puts a song, a psalm on their lips that pronounces, you become what you worship. 
The song has an oomph to it, doesn't it? Did you notice that as we read it? It's polemical against the nations, the unbelieving nations and their idols. It packs a punch against them. This is because this is essentially a song of trust. A song of trust. It's meant to get the people of God to put their trust in the Lord, the God of Israel. We see that trust is the dominant note because the words of the psalm are composed uh, in what we call a chiasm, where the two ends of the psalm mirror each other until they climax in the middle. And what's that middle point? It's what we did antiphonally, wasn't it? Verses 9 through 11, where we see this emphatic call to trust. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Israel would have sung this psalm together. It's one of the Hallel Psalms, which basically means praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Jesus would have sung this psalm with his disciples on the eve of Passover. And congregation, we can sing and speak and pray this psalm including the seemingly outdated parts about the idols of the nations. Because do we not live in a culture full of idols? If not the physical idols of a whole host of religions, and if not the saturation of brands, images, faces calling for our admiration and our attention, you know, think of Louis Vuitton. Or any other brand. Beyonce. Harry Styles. BTS. What have you. Marvel superheroes. Political pundits. And their thumbnails of their commentary videos. Instagram and TikTok influences. If not those things. Calling for our admiration and our attention. Even our devotion then we also have idols of the more sophisticated kind. As one author put it, each culture has its own shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster." End quote. Well, the psalmist's call is simple. Trust in the living God rather than in lifeless idols. Trust in the living God rather than in lifeless idols. Why? Because you become what you worship. This morning, we're going to walk through this psalm in four movements, and you can see that within your bulletins. I'll announce them as we go. So firstly, <clears throat> the glory of God. The glory of God. The psalm opens with a plea, and I hope you still have your Bibles open. Verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. The people of God are stuck in a distressing situation, most likely related to the fact that They've come through exile 
and they've really dwindled in number as a people. According to verse 2, the surrounding pagan nations are saying, where is their God? It's an ancient form of trash talk. Right? I grew up watching professional wrestling that get up, and half the time they're trash talking each other, aren't they? It's like Goliath trash talking the people of God in their presence. The unbelieving nations are saying, is the God of Israel even a God? Where is his power? Where is his help? Why doesn't he turn up for you? They don't see God at work in his people. And so we hear this urgent plea in response on the basis of the Lord's covenant loyalty, his steadfast love and faithfulness. And the plea is this, to your name, O Lord, give glory. Defend your honor. Vindicate your reputation among the world. Magnify your name, O Lord. That's the prayer. And this is a prayer that marks God's people throughout history. God's people relinquish all self-glory and self-interest, not to us, we pray, and instead we are consumed by a desire to see God glorified. We want to see him glorified, acknowledged, recognized, and praised among all peoples. I don't know if you've ever noticed the strange assumption that some people outside the church seem to have that Christians are meant to have neat and put-together lives. I mean, if you're a churchgoer, you're devoted to Jesus, you should be put together. And so when a Christian experiences the unexpected death in the family or the unforeseen diagnosis, or loses their job all of a sudden. Some calamity or tragedy happens to the Christian. Some are inclined to think, huh, where is their God? The God you pray to daily. Where is he? Has he come through for you? Why doesn't he turn up, do something about this tragedy? In our times of distress, brothers and sisters, we ought to be consumed by a desire to see God's honor and glory vindicated. To see him glorified in the midst of our distress, just like the people of Israel are in this psalm. This ought to be our prayer. Lord, to your name give glory. That ought to be our prayer in all things, but especially in times of distress. That he would be glorified in the trustful way in which we suffer. The trustful way in which we go through times of pain and darkness. Because it's through our trustful way of leaning upon God that we show the nations the glory of God, that he is trustworthy, that he is dependable. Well, why do we trust in him? Because verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. A striking statement of God's absolute sovereignty. His sovereignty. 
He is in control of all things. Nothing is part of plan B. God is sovereign. The nations say, where is their God? And God's people say, our God is in the heavens. He is transcendent. He is exalted. He reigns from above. He's not part of this world and our order. He is creator. And we see that he is omnipotent king because that phrase, he does all that he pleases, was an ancient phrase used of human kings. You see it in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Speaking of a human king, he does all that he pleases. Except in this case, this is a heavenly king. A heavenly king reigning from the heavenly throne room above. He is exalted on high, and the earth is his little footstool, his footrest. That's why we can trust in the Lord God, brothers and sisters. That's why he's worthy of glory and honor, because he's the sovereign king. He is in control, even though it seems like this distress, this trial, this pain, this disease is out of God's control. No, he does all that he pleases. And in Christ, he is for us. He is for us. The glory of God. Second, consider with me the futility of idols. The futility of idols. In sharp contrast to God, who dwells in heaven above, the idols of the nations are entirely earthbound. They're made of silver and gold, it says, elements of the earth. And in verses 4 through 8, the psalm kind of turns the tables on the pagan nations and throws back a taunt in their face. It's very satirical in the way that it mocks the idols. Yes, there's mockery going on in this song. The tone is kind of like this. They have their precious little mouths, but they do not speak. They have their engraved eyes, but they do not see. Right? It's satire. Now, the point of this satire is not to somehow encourage a kind of prideful gloating over our enemies or over unbelievers. No. But to encourage trust in the Lord. The true living God to engender trust in him by making these idols off-putting to Israel, ridiculous to God's people. Because, brothers and sisters, let's be straight about this. Idolatry is ridiculous. It's irrational. But that's what sin does to us. It makes us irrational. What are we told about the idols? They resemble living beings but they are in fact lifeless and utterly powerless. They they have mouths, eyes, ears, nose, hands, feet, throat, but those features don't actually match an ability to do anything. That's what the psalm is saying. They're unable to move. They're unable to smell or hear your prayers. They are unable to act or do anything, to bring deliverance in any way. 
They can do nothing for you. Why is that the case? Because they're the patchwork of human hands. Paper mache guards. You know, paint them with gold, lacquer them with silver, beautify them, give them extra eyes, put on some wings, do whatever you'd like, make them really big. In the end, idols are still products of human hands. You created them. Before you formed them, they did not exist. They are creations made in the image of man. And we're meant to see, brothers and sisters, how futile and foolish this really is. That you would rely on something that you yourself made. Right? That you would seek blessing from something that is dead and inanimate. People want a God that looks just like them. Makes them feel... They do not want a God who transcends them and makes them feel small. Not to mention makes them feel sinful. They want a God like themselves, but what they and what we need is the opposite. What mankind needs is the living God who does not have a physical mouth. He is God, he is spirit, and yet speaks. Does not have eyes and ears, yet sees and hears the cries of his people. Does not have a nose, yet smells the pleasing aroma of our sacrifice of praise. A God who does not have hands, yet accomplishes mighty acts of salvation. Does not have feet, yet goes before us, leads us, guides us as we sang, and makes the earth his footstool. The Lord our God does everything that lifeless idols cannot do. They only pretend to do those things But our God does them. He and he alone is the living one, the true God. Now, if you look at verse 8, that's the sting in the tail of this taunt of the idols. Look at what it says. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. In short, you become what you worship. You become what you worship. Now what this has in view is not a physical resemblance, but a growing spiritual resemblance between the idol and its worshiper. Early on in the book of Isaiah, the unbelieving Israelites are described as hearing but not understanding, as seeing but not perceiving. And the implication is that they have come to spiritually resemble and look like the idols of silver and gold that they are bowing down to. Those who worship idols will become spiritually insensitive, will grow increasingly spiritually dead, and will ultimately perish 
together with those perishable idols. This is a warning throughout, especially the Old Testament, but even in places like 1 John. Stay away from idols. Flee them, he says. Destruction is what ultimately awaits all those who put their trust in idols. Disappointment, emptiness, lifelessness, because these are lifeless idols. And this ought to serve as a sobering warning to us, brothers and sisters, because idolatry is not just a pagan problem. It's not just an out-there problem. Remember, God's own people don't have a very good track record on this front. Idolatry, straying from the one true God. Idolatry has been and continues to be a constant temptation. So let's not think it's any less prevalent today or even among us. We sophisticated modern people tend to think that by virtue of our modernity and advances in science and our progress in society, that we have progressed away from those primitive instincts of old peoples and people groups. Right? Oh, they, yeah, they were drawn to worship idols, bow down before statues, but we're sophisticated. But one author has said, sophistication is a smokescreen. As I've already mentioned, our culture, too, is full of idols. And we need to be aware of them. We need to see them for what they really are. A book came out early last year titled Work, Pray, Code. When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. It's about how tech companies today, uh, younger CEOs, Tech companies are bringing religion into the workplace to blur the lines between religion and work. Work. Productivity. Advancing your career and the prestige that comes with that. That's a powerful idol in our day, in our society. Possibly in your heart. Excuse me. Even more powerful than that is the idol that makes the world go around. Yes, mammon, money. People will lie, cheat, and steal to serve this idol. Companies will cut corners, find loopholes, even pay for employees to terminate their pregnancies if it's financially advantageous for the company. Christians will devote themselves to this idol and sacrifice fellowship with God and his people, even sacrifice their families and children in order to serve money. Because, well, after all, we need money to advance the kingdom. I need money to make my family and children happy, right? That's what we're told. Brothers and sisters, we are surrounded by countless idols. The idol of the state, the idol of 
strong political leaders, the idol of having perfect, admirable children, the idol of fitness and a breathtaking body or self-optimization, in short, the idol of the self, me, the idol of stuff, possessions, gadgets. We could say that every weekend, thousands upon thousands of people give expression to a kind of worship in the temple that is the shopping mall. Now, none of these things are evil in and of themselves, even money. But when they've become objects that we cling to for ultimate security in our lives, for meaning for our lives, when they become things we turn to for blessing, for the good life, or turn to in order to ward off disaster or anxiety in our lives, then they've become what Ezekiel 14.3 calls idols set up in the heart. That's what Ezekiel 14 says. You can have idols set up in the heart. And those things are bound to dull your eyes and your ears to Christ and his word. To make you more and more spiritually insensitive. To draw you away from the Lord your God. Because they promise you more and more and more and more. But in the end they will disappoint and leave you lifeless. It's a bait and switch. The acclaimed writer David Foster Wallace recognized this, by no means a believer, but he said this, If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough and never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, And you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. End quote. Do you see then the futility of giving yourself to things that cannot satisfy you, cannot give you blessing or fulfillment or meaning in life? Things that will just disappear. Things that will perish and bring you down with them. Though the idols around us, congregation, beckon us to put our trust in them, to run after them. We are beckoned by the psalmist to put our trust in another. And that leads us to our third point, the call to trust. The call to trust, verses 9 to 11, and this is the center and the climax of the entire psalm. It's safe to assume that when Israel sang this psalm together, This section would have involved antiphonal singing, that is, a call and response, kind of like what we did. The call goes forth, O Israel, trust in the Lord. And you hear this 
different set of voices saying, He is their help and their shield. Another imperative call to trust goes out. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. It's kind of like a praise chorus, right? The congregations of Israel and the Aaronic priesthood and all those who walk in the fear of the Lord, both great and small, both adults and children, are called to trust in the Lord and not in the lifeless idols of the nations or even the idols of the heart. And we are called to the same, brothers and sisters, to trust in Him, the living God. Now, to trust in God, that's a bit of an abstract concept. It's to look to Him, to seek Him in prayer, to think of Him for all our good and for blessing. To seek Him for happiness, for true meaning and fulfillment in life. Why? Why seek an invisible God who dwells in the heavens? Because he is our help and our shield. He both delivers and defends us. He both redeems us and protects us. This is something the Psalms repeatedly confess The Lord has been my help. The Lord, our help is in the name of the Lord, we confess at the beginning of the service. The Lord is my strength and my shield. You, O Lord, are a shield around me. As our help and our shield, then, God is utterly trustworthy. He will not disappoint us. He will not drag us down into the pit. He will not ultimately let us go. Instead, he will bless us. And this is our final point. The response of praise. Because God blesses us. Verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. We can be assured of God's blessing unlike those who trust in mute, deaf, and frozen idols. Now, in verses 14 and 15, being blessed by the Lord, who made heaven and earth, is equated with God giving increase. So after this exile, the decimated people of God eagerly awaited numerical increase, as any people would. And this assures them that that increase is on the way. The mention of you and your children down in verse 14 makes it clear that it's talking about the blessing of posterity. The blessing of a next generation to carry on the work. A wonderful increase in the people of God. And we hear echoes of Genesis chapter 1, don't we? which records that God made heaven and earth, just like it says here, he made heaven and earth, and God blessed the man and the woman whom he made in his image, saying, be fruitful and multiply. 
Our God is a God of life, of abundance, of fruitfulness, of generosity. The echoes of Genesis 1 continue into verse 16 here. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. It harkens back to when God blessed them, gave them dominion over the earth. Now, why would the psalmist bring that up, though? Bring up Genesis 1. Again, it's to show God's abundance, his generosity, giving the earth to the children of man to tend to it, to have dominion over it, but also to show that mankind is accountable to God, its creator. God has entrusted the earth to the children of man. We are not kings on this earth. We are stewards. And so the Lord has a unique claim to man's service and his worship. We are stewards of the creator. We are not servants of the creation. And so we are to use and tend to and care for the creation, but we are never to bow down to it, be bound to it. That's what the psalmist is getting at. Think of the Lord your God who has given you creation, for use, not for worship. We worship the Creator alone. Now, in the last two verses, the assurance of the Lord's blessing is met with the response that we will bless the Lord, that we'll praise Him from this time forth and forevermore. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise is something that the dead cannot do. <clears throat> Verse 17 describes death as going down into silence. It's the destination of the wicked, where it's impossible to praise the Lord any longer. That's what happens to those who trust in idols. The dead, silent idols take you down into death and silence. But, verse 18 We who trust in the Lord will praise him both now and forever. And on one level, the psalm is talking about God preserving Israel so that they will continue to praise the Lord generation after generation. And certainly God will preserve his church on this earth, even though the church might look weak, small in the eyes of the world, God will preserve her and continue the praises of the church throughout the generations. But we cannot but help think, we cannot help but think that the psalm is also pointing to life beyond death. We can sing these words in the fullest sense because through Jesus Christ we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting. So that we will quite literally, in Christ, praise the Lord both now and forevermore. Throughout eternity. Because of Christ. We will live and we will bless the Lord in resemblance to the Lord 
who is the living God and the God of blessing. Because remember, you become what you worship. And if it's true that those who trust in idols will become like them, then it must also be true that those who trust in the living God will become like him. Now let's be clear. We will not become little gods. We will not become a part of God. But we will come to resemble him to the maximum of our capacities as human beings. We will come to partake in something of his glory and his purity, of his beauty as his beloved people in Christ. Because in his steadfast love and faithfulness, the transcendent God who dwells in the heavens has come down. Has come down from the heavens in the person of Jesus Christ. The eternal Son, who was spirit, took on a mouth, eyes, ears, and a nose. His hands and feet were pierced. His throat was parched as he hung on the cross, all the while remembering the psalm he had sung with his disciples at Passover. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. To your name, O Father, give glory was the heart of Christ, even on the cross. And he descended into the silence of the grave, but he did not stay there. His soul was not abandoned to Sheol, but he was raised to life. And now we're told in 2 Corinthians that we behold the glory of the risen Christ in whose face shines the glory of God himself. We behold this glory in the reading of the scriptures, in the proclamation of his word, in the communion of his body and blood. And now, listen to those words from 2 Corinthians 3.18. Glorious words. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. All who trust in him will ultimately become like him in glory. And knowing his blessing of abundant, eternal life, we will truly bless the Lord both now and forevermore. That is what awaits us, congregation, in Christ. And it's already already begun in us. 2 Corinthians says, we are being, right now, transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed. We are being conformed to the image of Christ as we behold his glory in the gospel. Therefore, cast off those futile idols of your heart and also externally, which only lead to emptiness, disappointment, dissatisfaction, and ultimately death. Heed that warning and trust in this one. 
in Christ, who was the image of the invisible God and our only help and shield. Amen. Let us pray. O God, you are the living God. You are the God of generous abundance and life everlasting. Grant us that life through Jesus Christ our Lord and conform us more and more into his image until in glory we are transformed completely as we see him face to face. Lord, we look forward to that day and we pray you would work in us by your spirit even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.